Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. And special thanks to those of you who have reached out in the last couple weeks with your kind words about my conversation with Coach Nate Calhoun. You're right, he is indeed something special. And yeah, I like him a lot. We had a lot of fun. He's just a good guy to talk with. I'm telling you, it's like one of those things where like you think you know, right? Because most of us have had a physical education teacher. Like we had that experience. So we think we know what it's like to do what they do. But I think that conversation with Coach Calhoun kind of speaks volumes about what I'm seeking to do on this podcast. On some level, what he does is perfectly ordinary. But then you crack the surface of it, or better yet, dive deep, and you find real quickly that there's a lot of substance. There's a lot of thought and a lot of emotion behind what people do. Anyway, Nate was a great guest. He's an esteemed colleague. I'm glad you all listened. I'm thrilled you enjoyed it, and I'm grateful for your kind words. And listen, if you support the Missionist Duds, if you appreciate the program, if you strive to support independent creators, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head on over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. So you can get a little something in exchange for a wee donation. And if you, my dear listener, will allow me this small joy, I'd like to seize a moment to thank a brand new Studs patron, Mr. Tony Demma. Now, I had the pleasure of knowing Tony Demma a bit some 25 years ago. I recall him having a timeless wit and something of a Cheshire cat grin. I also fondly recall him careening from this kind of funky swagger to this rather welcoming warmth. He's one of those cats that I knew was large and contained multitudes, although I never got to know him well. Anyway, much to my surprise and very much to my pleasure, I guess he's been listening to the podcast. It brings me great joy to know that he's listening, and I'm honored that he's now a patron of this here podcast. And listen, if you're not swimming in pools of pearls like Tony Demma, and if you need to take a free ride on the Studs Pod, I get it. We're good. I've been on that train. But you can still do your part to help. Do this. Hit follow or subscribe right now. Go on. Now's a good time. And then share your favorite episode with a friend or a loved one. This episode here could easily end up being your favorite because this episode of the Studs Pod features a conversation with Dr. Joseph Curtis. Joseph is a veteran choir director and music teacher wholeheartedly committed to meeting students where they are, empowering them to find their voices and to create harmony. We explore what it takes to guide a choral community that makes space for all voices. 
He's a uniquely talented instructor who seems tirelessly devoted to fostering empathy and unity through music. You're going to love this one. So join me in conversation with Dr. Joseph Curtis. Dr. Joseph Curtis, welcome to Studs. It is a pleasure to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for some time. So tell me, Joseph, how do you describe what you do? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. It is a pleasure to be here and to talk about what I do. I believe that this interview is about me as a choral director. That is one of about three hats that I wear professionally. I'm also a music teacher, which means basically teaching music history and theory. And I'm also chair of the fine arts department in my school. So that involves a lot of administrative work. But to the choral director part of my job, I spend a lot of time preparing and planning rehearsals. So that would involve choosing the right literature, the right music, and studying those scores, thinking about how best to teach the piece, and also looking for what I perceive as potential stumbling blocks or difficult spots, and how I'm going to communicate about those places and help the students to succeed there. In addition, I then facilitate rehearsals in the room, rehearsing together, and that would involve uh, working on and teaching musical elements, also basically teaching voice, in this case in a large group setting, helping the students learn to use their voices in an effective way. In the rehearsal, there's also always a component of music history that comes into uh, discussions about the literature that we're singing. Very important is our relationship as humans to the texts that we're singing, what we actually bring in terms of our own experiences and how we're then going to express the literature that we're working on. In addition, part of my job is, of course, to plan and to prepare for performances. The booking of venues, collaborating with instrumentalists and instrumental ensembles that are also part of my school, thinking about the order of the program, thinking about transitions between those pieces, creating printed programs, also trying to look at the whole package, I would say from the audience's perspective. After a performance is finished, then comes the process of evaluating the preparation and the execution of the performance, what went well, what could or should we do better next time. And that evaluation almost always involves the members of the choir as well. That's basically what I do as a choral director. I have to tell you, I'm nearly overwhelmed just hearing about all that goes into it. And I've found myself overwhelmed at some of your choir performances as well. I've had the good fortune, the pleasure indeed, of watching you at work and watching your choirs do what they do. And it is truly extraordinary and quite heartening. And before we dive too much further into some of the specifics I'm hoping you might be able to walk us along your path 
to becoming a high school choral director? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the, the kind words about performances. That's very gratifying to hear and very kind of you. So I guess it all began at the age of five. My parents, neither of whom are very musical, decided that I should learn to play an instrument. And I think it was kind of an unfulfilled dream on their part. They had each been given the opportunity to learn an instrument, but as is so often the case, they didn't follow through. They quit very shortly after they began. And so here I came along and they wanted to give me the opportunity that they passed over. So the question came to me as a five-year-old, would you like to have a piano? We will buy you a piano if you take piano lessons. And looking back on that, knowing what I know now about children, I think, yeah, what five-year-old would say no to a great big noisemaker? I said yes. <laughs> so I said yes. <laughs> I said yes, I would love to have a piano and I will take piano lessons. So it began. And also very common, it wasn't too long after I had begun that I began to ask, can I quit now? I'm tired of this. And wait, wait, are you describing my childhood or yours here? <laughs> yeah, sounds very familiar, Joseph. I think I'm probably describing the childhoods of many, many people. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, as a six, seven-year-old, there were just things that were much more enticing to me than sitting at the piano practicing. The question continued, can I quit now? All the way into high school. And my mother developed an answer that, looking back, was pretty clever. She started answering this way. Sure, you can quit any time, as long as you're not living in this house any longer. <laughs> Well, what 14, 15-year-old is ready to move out? <laughs> That's where our stories differ. I felt totally ready to move out when I was 14, though in retrospect, I, I wasn't. But surely I, I felt ready to go. Well, I might have liked the idea of moving out, but I knew that it financially wasn't possible for me. <laughs> so I was kind of stuck, and my mother knew that. <laughs> so I continued anyway with the piano through high school until graduation. In high school, I discovered singing and I discovered choir through my church. The church had a youth choir. We actually did some touring and quite a bit of performing. And so that was my introduction, actually, into vocal and choral music. I enjoyed all of that so much, and music had become really the focus of my life in high school that after high school, I joined a music and drama group that toured the United States. And I actually stayed with that group for five years. So between the ages of 18 and 23, I was involved in this touring, singing and acting, which was a great experience. Oh, bad. When I finally decided it's time to stop traveling around the country and playing, Maybe I should go to the university or start a program. I knew I had to do something with music. I couldn't imagine my working life being devoted to anything other than music. And talked to a good friend of mine who was in the university at the time studying music education. 
And he asked me, what are your goals? I wasn't exactly sure. I was thinking quite a bit about performance at the time. But he gave me some advice, which in retrospect was very wise. He said, get a degree in music education. And if you want to perform, you can perform. You don't have to have a performance degree, but you'll always have something to fall back on. And even though at the time I really had no interest in teaching, I took that advice to heart and I did go on to, to study music education with the idea there's always something to fall back on if nothing else works out. So I ended up going on to get a master's degree in vocal performance and pedagogy, thinking that I would maybe land a job in a university sometime teaching private voice. But then I discovered a wonderful little town almost on the Mexican border called Bisbee. If anybody's listening to this podcast that is living in Bisbee, I give a great shout out to all Bisbeeites. <laughs> all right. But I really wanted to live in that town. That had become a dream for me. And I realized as a musician, there's probably nothing for me to do there in terms of making a living other than teaching in the public school system. That which I had not wanted to do. <laughs> so I sent a letter. Yeah, we wrote letters back in those days. <laughs> right, right. I sent a letter to the superintendent of the school district uh, with a resume, basically just saying, I might be interested in a music teaching job if one should come available in your town. Well, he got back to me very quickly saying, our music teacher is leaving. We'd love to have you apply. And as they say, the rest is history. I got the job, ended up conducting choirs in this small town for about 10 years. And yeah, haven't looked back. That's what I've been doing ever since. Thanks for walking me along your path. And I have to say, I always feel a really strong connection to these stories with these little snippets of serendipity, right? You just happen to run into this person who told, yeah, maybe you should get a music education degree to fall back on. And you wanted to move to this hippie town of Bisbee. And they just happened to have a vacancy that they desperately needed filled and yeah, the rest is history, but it's a lovely story as well. Now, Joseph, I don't tend to do much research on my guests, but since you and I have uh, some shared history, we also have a, a shared interest or two, one of whom is the esteemed member of the Kennedy School class of 2021, Hannah Cook. Mm. And I know that Hannah was your student for some time. So I reached out to her and I asked her if she had any questions for you. And she was thrilled to participate. And she offered a couple of questions, one of which is this. And I will say that I share her curiosity. Now I'm curious. <laughs> well, here it is. Why did you choose to continue being a high school choral director as opposed to, at some point, pivoting towards a professional choir? Like, what's the draw? What keeps you coming back for more at the high school level? It's a very good question. She's a very good kid. She's a fantastic student, a fantastic young woman. Well, there are so very few 
full-time professional choirs in the world. And that means very few positions for a full-time choir director in a professional setting. In the upcoming school year, my high school choir will have a partnership with the very esteemed and wonderful Rias Kammerchor here in the city of Berlin. And thinking about their conductor as an example, he's a full-time choral conductor, one of, I would say, few in the world. He does a lot of traveling. Um, he guest conducts a lot. He lives in England. I think he would say his main position is in Berlin. So there's a lot of flying back and forth. His family's in England. And that kind of lifestyle actually has never appealed to me. This living in several places at once and maybe having several different choirs and different continents, which is very typical for choral and orchestral directors when they get to that level. What did interest me for a long time was teaching at the university level which is, yeah, just a much more likely option. If somebody wants to continue in the choral field but move out of high school, it would more likely be into a university setting. And that did interest me, as I said. And in 2003, I actually interviewed for a position at a college in the U.S. So the interview went well, I think, and it, it interested me. And at that point, I had decided if I get offered the job at this college, I should take it, even though the job didn't seem that exciting, but it's a foot in the door, so to speak, into the college world. And from there, I could probably move to a position that was more interesting and more fulfilling. At the same time, within a week, I had interviewed for the position at the Kennedy School in Berlin, which actually was much more interesting to me than the small college in Pennsylvania. I was much more excited about the idea of living in another country and another culture and being in Europe. I didn't get offered the college job. I was the proverbial second choice. I wonder how many people on their list were told they were second choice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. the moment that I got that rejection... I actually felt great joy because that meant to me, I'm going to Berlin. I'm going to live in Europe. I'm going to experience another culture, not as a tourist, but as a person who's actually living there. Yes. And I have enjoyed this international experience so much. I have enjoyed teaching at the John F. Kennedy School so much. And I would say that the challenges of my job have never stopped. They've only increased. And professionally, I need challenges. So it's actually the reason I left my wonderful little job in fantastic Bisbee, Arizona. I just needed new professional challenges. But the John F. Kennedy School has continued to provide those challenges for me in uh, mostly very positive ways. And so at some point, the desire to do something else or something bigger, so to speak, went away. Yeah. And I don't know that there's much bigger than what you do. You know, again, having seen what you do, 
there's something big about it. There's something grand about it. And now that we've satiated at least part of Hannah Cook's interest, let's dive into some of the exquisite work that you do. I'm going to have to, because I know that if I don't ask you sort of a nuts and bolts question at the beginning, I know that I'm going to fail to ask you as we get further into our conversation. Okay. So here's the nuts and bolts question. I, I want to know how you structure a choir class. I want to get a sense of like how the class starts, if there's a daily ritual of sorts. Can you kind of walk us through the day-to-day, the class-to-class of your teaching practice? Absolutely. I love this question. Thanks. We have been, as you well know, in a pandemic situation for nearly a year and a half now. And this situation has wreaked havoc on music programs and especially on choirs. And so thinking to the normal routine that one of my choir rehearsals entails brings me so much joy because I've missed it so much over the past year and a half. So what happens in a rehearsal? And there is a routine. Students walk into the room. They come in and the choir in the last few years has been typically between 80 and 100 students. So that's a lot of people coming into the room <laughs> yeah, it is. at the same time. <laughs> I'd just like to give our listeners a, a sense of this. Like, let's let them pause on that for a moment. We're talking about 80 to 100 high school kids in the room. Yeah. All right. We've let that settle now. <laughs> Carry on, please. And it's wonderful having these students in the same room. So... Anybody that's ever worked with high school students knows about volume levels. (laughs) (laughs) So they come into the room and it's noisy and it's such a happy noise. They're all talking to each other. They're just chatting about their days. Maybe they're complaining. I don't know. But to me, I'm usually standing near the door or sitting at the piano. It sounds so happy this joyous chatter as the students are coming in. And sometimes in the beginning of a school year, it takes a little while to get this next part of the routine down, but maybe a month in, everybody's got it. So at some point I will go to the piano and I will play a chord. And that chord is a signal. Everybody stops talking. Right now, in the middle of your sentence, stop talking because we're going to transition from talking to singing. And that chord then flows into our warm-up routine. I'll use different warm-ups at each rehearsal, just getting the voice ready to sing. It's kind of analogous to stretching before you're going to go out to run, getting those muscles loosened up and warmed up. So... I'm sitting at the piano and I'm leading the students through warm-ups and I'm talking to them about vowel placement and I'm talking to them about breathing and all the aspects that go into good singing. But one of my favorite moments is really this transition from the happy chatting to the happy singing. When everybody's doing the same thing together and there's a unity that comes into the group. So this warm-up session might last six to 10 minutes. It should actually be longer, but our rehearsals are only 45 minutes. So we have to um, be careful with our time. Then the next thing will be announcements. 
And I try to keep the talking part of rehearsal as brief as possible. But there are always some things that need to be discussed. Upcoming performances, rehearsals, performance outfits, etc. And then I'm back at the piano, or my accompanist is at the piano, and I'm standing at a podium. And we start working on the music. And we will look at specific spots that we've had troubles with, or sometimes we'll sing through a whole piece. We'll talk about texts. Yeah, just rehearsing. At that point, getting ready for concerts. The bell rings, and the students put their music away, and that happy chatting resumes. And I am always aware that I would say almost 100% of the time, students leave the rehearsal happier than when they came in, because that's what singing does for us, especially singing in a group. So that's a typical rehearsal. You know, Joseph, as I hear you walk through that set of ideas, it becomes so evident that you really see your students as as whole people, right? You're not just trying to teach them to sing and to sing together, but you're trying to encourage their happiness. You're promoting a joyous atmosphere. And I think a lot of teachers claim to have a holistic view of their students and a holistic approach to education. I guess I just want to know what it means to you as a choral director to teach the whole person. Like, what does that mean to you? And where do you succeed and sometimes not succeed in that mission? Yeah, another good question. I believe that it's the subject matter. It's music. Music is holistic. And singing is holistic. So it's, in a way, it's actually kind of built in. Music and singing is physical. It's mental. It's emotional. It's academic. It's sport. It's really all of those things happening at the same time. We're working with the physical aspect, with our bodies, breathing, posture. It can be very academic. We're working through tough passages of music and talking about how notes are put together and what composers' intentions were. We are diving into deep emotional places within us because of the text that we sing. But even the music itself, aside from the text, sometimes releases very strong emotions or takes us to deep, deep places within ourselves. So it's not unusual when we're singing in a rehearsal setting for there to be laughter, to be absolute joy or even tears. And so I think the students, if they're open to the music, then it really does involve all of who they are. And they bring themselves into the music. And I encourage that. When you're singing a song and you're thinking about the text, how can you connect that to your own life? What experiences have you had that have made you feel this way? Whatever that is, that's, that's buried within this song. And one example would be, our school is part of an Advent and Christmas concert every year at the Berlin Cathedral. It's so lovely. <laughs> it's, it is lovely, and the students love it so much. It's really a highlight for them. But there's something that's kind of odd about it, if I'm honest, and that is we're a public school, and we're presenting basically a church service. 
it's very religious. The texts are religious. And we're doing it together with the American church in Berlin. And so presenting these pieces and these texts in this context to my students in a public school setting, sometimes a little bit challenging, but I certainly don't shy away from discussions. And we might be singing a text about the baby being born in the major and how absolutely thrilled and joyful we are about that. And I will say to students, that might mean nothing to you. You might not believe in any of this, and that's perfectly okay. Is there something else in your life that brings you tremendous joy? Just, you can't imagine anything better than this. Think about that when you're singing. If you're a Christian, and the idea of the baby being born in the manger brings you great joy, think about that. But find something in yourself that you can connect to this expression, to this feeling, so that then you're able to bring that across to your audience. So I think, yeah, just dealing with music itself and dealing with texts brings us into so many aspects of, of who we are as humans. So Joseph, as I hear you speak about your commitment to teaching the, the whole child and to hear you talk about how you help your students tap into their emotional reservoirs so that they could, you know, feel the music and understand the music and perform it. It dawns on me, and perhaps this borders on the confessional here, but it does dawn on me that group singing of all varieties tends to make me deeply emotional like whether this is at a concert where everybody's singing along with a band on stage, whether this is, you know, watching an acapella group, whether this is like singing with my wife and kid at a sports stadium even, makes me profoundly emotional. And I know I'm not alone in this. And I guess I just wonder, as it pertains to your work, how you navigate your emotions in the midst of such raw expression like it either like fully invigorates you you know period after period day after day of engaging this emotional enterprise or it just exhausts you maybe somewhere in between so tell me if you would how do you how do you deal with the emotional landscape of being a choral director yeah i'll answer that i think in two parts it's not necessarily somewhere in between, but it's both at the same time. It is incredibly invigorating, energy-giving, and at the same time, it is exhausting. So I think both of these things are often going on in me at the same time. But another aspect of this question, which I find incredibly interesting, is how we as performers... So for, for myself as a conductor, but also for my singers, how do you stand in front of an audience and communicate? Everything we do is about communication. That is absolutely the bottom line. That is number one. Our job is to communicate. How do we communicate on a deep level, bringing ourselves, our experiences, our histories, and our stories into what we're singing and still stay in control. This is the challenge. And I'll just share with you one, one small anecdote which has impressed me 
and stayed with me for decades now. During my master's degree at Arizona State University, I was studying voice with a fantastic, fantastic voice teacher, Dr. Jerry Doan, who also was wonderful at educating the whole person. And we would have um, studio recital every Friday. And what that meant was all of Dr. Doan's students would gather together and sing for each other. And we would critique each other. Each week, maybe three or four students would sing something that they were working on. And I was singing a piece from Schumann's Dichterliebe. That song cycle has probably at least 20 times where the singer says, my heart is torn in two, my heart is broken. It's very sad music for the most part. And so I was singing one of these heartbroken pieces in front of the rest of the class. And Dr. Doan turned to the rest of the singers and asked them, do you believe, Joseph? Do you believe that he feels what he's singing about? And they all kind of <laughs> said, no, we don't believe him at all. He's not convincing. Uh, I was pretty horrified. I thought I had done my best. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Doan then said to me, sit in front of us on the stage in a chair, and I want you to think about one of the saddest, most heartbreaking experiences you've ever had in your life. I was pretty young, so there wasn't much that I could look back on, but my grandfather had died a few years before, and I was very close to him. And I had been asked to sing at his funeral, which was difficult for me, but I did it. And it was just a sad time for me, this funeral. And so I sat there in front of uh, the rest of the singers and thought about being at this funeral and my feelings I had. And he left me there for five or six minutes, and it was silent. The room was completely silent. And my job was just to think about this sad experience. And he asked me then, what are you thinking about? He said, you don't have to share with us. But I did. I told the, the rest of them about the, the funeral and my grandfather. And I started to tear up a little bit. And then he said, okay, now sing the song again. And think about that funeral while you're singing it. So I stood up and I started to sing the song again. And I began to cry. And I couldn't continue singing. And Dr. Doan again said, stop. You're not allowed to cry. And then he said, what had impressed me the most and has stayed with me, he said, as a performer, you have to live on the edge of a very, very sharp knife. If you fall to one side, nobody believes anything that you're saying. If you fall to the other side, you've lost control. And if you cry in front of an audience, you have lost the ability to communicate as well. So the place that you live all the time is right on the edge of the knife. And for me as a choral director, that means, yes, the text might be very emotional, I'm conducting the choir. Maybe our experiences as a choir working on this piece, talking about it, have been very emotional, and I remember those. But I have to stay on the edge, and my students have to as well. And this is a lesson that I have tried to pass on to any musicians that I've worked with over the years, finding this balance. And surely those are the lessons that last a lifetime Dr. Curtis, I have to tell you, it sounds really intense. 
Like when you describe the teaching and learning environment that you create as living on the edge of a sharp knife. I mean, I get it. It makes sense. The metaphor works and it's powerful, clearly. It also sounds really emotionally intense. Can you talk a little bit about what it feels like to engage in that intense environment day after day? Well, I would say that not every rehearsal is that intense. I mean, some rehearsals are, hey, people, that was a quarter note, not an eighth note. Come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So there's all the nuts and bolts as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. That actually makes it all the more interesting and yet all the more difficult because you have to vacillate between your needs to have your students read the music properly, right? Get the quarter notes, get the spaces, hit the mark, right? Right. And there's some nuts and bolts and you have to keep your mind and your eyes on the nuts and bolts, but you also have to keep your heart on the emotional tenor of the the work. It sounds desperately difficult, Joseph. <laughs> I don't think it's as difficult as it sounds because actually all of that is not always happening at the same time. Right. I think like in any other field, there are times that we're really just working on getting pitches and rhythms right. You know, this is just the technical stuff. And then there might be other rehearsals where we actually are diving more deeply into texts or into the emotion of what we're singing about. But that typically is best approached, I would say, a bit later, after the rhythms and the pitches and the dynamics are somewhat in order. Because that's the point we can really start making music and start communicating. Well, I think we need often the tools first. And by tools, I just mean the elements of music, the, the correct pitches, the correct rhythms, correct pronunciation of words. Yes. So it's probably not as, as complicated as I made it sound first. Well, but, you know, I think both are true and both are important. And it also seems that it's important in your work to empower young people to find their voices and you do this both literally and metaphorically. I wonder if you'd be willing to discuss the specifics of what you do to help young people to pursue and to discover their voices. Sure. The answer to that question is as varied as the number of students that I've had in my career. Some students come to me having always had a voice, voice both literally and also more metaphorically. Some have a voice, they just haven't discovered it yet. Then my role is just to make space for them, to facilitate them finding their voice, again, literally and metaphorically. And then I think that very important for all of us is mistakes are okay. There's a lot of space for mistakes. And I often will say to students, if you're going to make a mistake, make a big one. Make a loud one. <laughs> yes. You know, there are a lot of reasons for that. If I can't hear the mistake, I can't help them fix it. 
if they can't hear the mistake, then they're not even aware that there's anything wrong. So there has to be room for mistakes. There has to be room for wrong notes and wrong entrances. Sometimes we have embarrassing moments, but I try to create an environment where, you know, we can laugh together, but nobody's being laughed at. And I think the students help each other a lot, too, to find their voices. I do a lot of modeling with my own voice when I'm leading rehearsals. And I feel that sometimes can have an impact on students. But I think students model for each other a lot, and often they aren't even realizing it. Students will often tell me long after the fact, oh, I was so happy when you, when you sat me next to Samantha because Samantha sings so beautifully and I've learned so much from her voice. Also at the school, I offer vocal techniques sessions where students can come and work on their voices in small groups or even individually. And so that's been a, a huge advantage because with a choir of 80 to 100 people, it's really hard to even hear the individual, much less help them develop their voice. So I always encourage them to, to come to some kind of a small group session. And as I already mentioned, in the coming year, our partnership with uh, the Rios Kammer Corps is going to be exciting and effective, I think, because in some rehearsals, we will be singing in a mixed formation together with that professional choir. So high school beginning students standing next to or sitting next to a professional baritone or alto or whatever voice part it is can be extremely informative just listening to the sound yeah that could inspire them encourage them and help to pull them in the right direction i want to actually ask you a question about the other side of it but i want to preface this question by assuring you that i'm not like making a joke at all Okay. You have students who are naturally gifted. Uh, you have students who are maybe skilled, but not gifted per se, mm -hmm. right? And you probably have students who are neither gifted nor skilled, right? Like you meet your students where they're at and you try to bring out the best in all of them. And you've already talked a little bit about how and why you do that. But some of these kids are like, eighth or ninth grade boys whose voices are at least temporarily i mean dude they're just atrocious right <laughs> and i wonder how you navigate that whole problem like which is to say having students who either temporarily or not they just have awful voices maybe they love to sing you know what I'm talking about. What's the secret sauce to navigating that problem? Hmm. If I had the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is red wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that's a tough question. And you're right. Uh, so I've always gone with the philosophy that everybody can sing, or at least everybody can learn to sing. And for some, it's easier than others. For some, it's much easier than others. And I think that hard work and discipline are often 
much more important in the end than talent. So we have students that want it so badly that they're willing to work hard for it. And they usually achieve quite a bit of success. I think important is to try to find the strengths that the students have and then capitalize on them to try to then bring them further. The least effective, in my opinion, in my experience, the least effective method to work with students that are struggling is to tell them they don't sound good. Sadly, a lot of music teachers, at least in the past, did just that. Mouth sync. We shouldn't hear you, but just move your mouth. You're in the choir, but we don't want you to ruin the sound. I would never say that to a student um, because that's too discouraging, and I think they're probably going to give up at that point. But I try to meet them where they are, give them the help that they might need. It often involves one-on-one -on -one sessions with individuals. And yeah, you mentioned those, those boys who either are going through a voice change, have gone through a voice change, and have not discovered their new voice yet. Often I will say to students, I feel like you haven't um, discovered yet the difference between speaking and singing. And singing requires a different kind of air support and a different kind of energy. It's much more physical. It's much more athletic. In a one-on-one -on -one session, that's easier to address. Also, students who need it will often receive from me rehearsal sound files that I create for them. I might record myself singing, send it to them so they can practice at home. Sometimes I think students helping other students is much more effective than the teacher trying to help the student. Maybe they accept things better sometimes from their peers. Also, the voices sound more similar, these younger voices. And after all of those attempts, it's not always a success. I have very well-meaning, wonderful, delightful students that will sing in the choir for maybe two or three years. And when they leave the end of 12th grade, I might think, well, they never really got it. They never really got what it is to be a singer, to sing well on pitch. But obviously, because they kept coming back, there was something there for them. It did something for them. It became part of their identity. And because we're not an auditioned choir in my school, who am I to take that away from them? Yes. I like that so much. I also like the fact that you don't hold auditions. I like the democratic nature of what you do. And I love that you meet them where they're at and that you try to bring them to where they want to go. And I also know that part of doing that is choosing the right music for the choir that you have and creating performance programs for them. And I'm hoping you might be able to talk a little bit about your process of choosing music and creating performance programs. I guess I have somewhat of a formula. The music that I choose, I think most importantly, should challenge the students where they're at, but not be unattainable. So that's not always easy to find. Before the end of a school year, I'm usually looking at music for the upcoming school year without really knowing who my group is going to be and what their ability level is going to be. That requires quite a bit of adjustment once I meet the new group. 
there's a lot of consistency. Students stay typically stay with the choir for several years, but there's also quite a bit of turnover. So challenging, but attainable. I've often said that uh, the music also needs to teach us something. So is there a skill that we're struggling with? Are we having more troubles with rhythm or with range? So find something that's going to work on the aspects that are needed in the singers at that time. I've also often said that good composers are our best teachers. We learn from them. We learn from the way that they put notes together. I also think about when programming, we need music that is pleasing to the students, that's fun for them to sing, that they can relate to and that they like. We also need music that is going to be pleasing to our audiences. And finally, I need to like the music. (laughs) So I look at those three aspects. The students should like it, the audience should like it, and I should like it. And not every piece on the program is going to equally please all three of those groups. But hopefully, there's something on the program for everybody. I also look for variety in a concert, variety in kinds of texts, uh, tempos, keys, languages, time periods, styles. And I'm really quite a big fan of themed concerts when possible. It's hard to do in my current setting because I usually share a program with the orchestra and or the band. And it's really harder for instrumental groups to have a theme concert. Texts really help us come up with themes. Can you give me an example of a theme or two that you've enjoyed? (laughs) Sure. It was easier for me in the States because my choir concerts were really standalone concerts. It was just my choirs. So we did music of the 50s, music of the 60s. We did a Beatles-themed concert. We did music um, from movies, uh, music from television shows, and Typically, the last concert of the year is lighter music, and those are some of the themes I'm talking about. But a couple years ago here in Berlin, I was doing a concert off campus together with the orchestra. And just by chance, I found a piece about the moon. And I love this piece so much, and I decided it's going to be the centerpiece of this concert for the choir. And then looking for other music, I... I found something about the sun. And then there was a piece that dealt with stars. And I thought, oh, I've got a theme developing here. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to sing. Everything we're going to sing has some reference to the moon, the sun, or the stars. And that was really a lot of fun to put together because there are just hundreds of pieces that you can choose from, all languages and styles and time periods. So... I said to the orchestra director at the time, I have a theme for our concert. And he looked at me rather skeptically and said, okay, what is it? And how does the orchestra fit into it? And I said, the concert is going to be called Heaven and Earth. And we're the heaven and you guys are the earth. (laughs) And he said, okay, I'm not sure what that means, but we'll go with it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's such a charming idea. It's hard to say no. And I hope that at least you gave some serious consideration to bringing David Bowie into the whole thing, it being Berlin, heaven, earth, and stars and whatnot. 
Hey, I have a question for you about music and choosing programs. I wonder if there is like a Dr. Curtis signature selection. Like if you have like a really strong choir that's ready for a challenge and you really want to rev the engines a bit and hear what they can do. Like what's your go-to? Is there like a box B minor mass or like Mahler's eighth or something that's really gonna, you know, give them a chance to get some air into the intake valves and hit the track? Hmm. There are probably several. Give me one or two and I'll link to them in the show notes so our, our listeners can enjoy them. Okay. There's a couple pieces from Mozart's Requiem that the choirs always love to sing. Well, one of them, which is the, the Dies Irae, is just such a powerful piece of music and the students can really open up and sing on that one. Teenagers love the drama in that. <laughs> yeah. The other one from the same work, the Requiem, is the Lacrimosa. And I think they like that one, and I do too, just because it's so filled with very deep and very sad emotion. Another piece that we did one year, and I would love to do it again, uh, but not every choir is up to it, by a not such a well-known composer, Andreas Hammerschmidt, and it's called Freude, Freude, Große Freude. And it's just a wonderful, exciting piece to sing. And I remember working on it with a choir several years ago. And, um, boy, it was a challenge. We just had to go measure by measure. And we employed, often in our rehearsals that fall, the saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Because that felt <laughs> like an elephant to us. But we did it. Yeah. A couple of examples. I'm also a great fan of modern music and, and things that are being written today and, and really avant-garde experimental styles. And they're often quite challenging for young choirs. But when I can get something like that in the programming, I always do. Maybe you could throw out a name or two. I'll link to those also. We'll give our, we'll give our listeners a bit of a choral education. It is what you do after all. There are lots of things by... Eric Whitaker, and he's very well known today in the choral world. Not really avant-garde or experimental, although maybe 20 years ago, to some extent, he would have been considered that. Little Birds is a piece by Whitaker that we've done a few times, a couple of times. Uh, that's been a wonderful experience for the choir. It has a small aleatoric section in the middle of it, which is a bit unusual for choirs, but quite fun. And... When I talk about Andreas Hammerschmidt uh, and Mozart and Eric Whitaker, we're talking about wildly different time periods and styles, but great composers and great music. That's what they have in common. Joseph, I'll bet it's really fun to choose music and to create performance programs. And I've watched you work and I get the sense that you have fun being the director and I kind of wonder, like, how do you put yourself in front, put your everything into it, and then make it not about you? Because you managed to do that really well. How do you do it? Thank you. I, I hope that's true, that I can do that well. I think, number one, I, I see myself as a facilitator, and I want to make space for other people to shine. And if my singers 
shine, so to speak, I feel happy and fulfilled. And I feel like I know my role. My role and my job is to communicate with students and audiences the intent of a lyricist or a poet and the intent of a composer. I allow myself the space to bring in my own interpretation and my own experiences, but I also want to make space for students to bring their own interpretations and their own experiences and for the audience to do the same when they're listening. But I think as a conductor and a person who puts together concerts, I get enough and I get probably get more than a lot of people do. And what I mean by enough is the applause is there. And yeah, the applause is for all of us. It's, it's for the students. And I try to deflect the applause always to the, the members of the choir. But I realize that the applause is also there for me and the audience is uh, expressing appreciation. At the end of concerts, I, I receive flowers. And <laughs> I receive lots of thanks. I receive thank you notes and, and people coming up and talking about how how much they appreciate the concert, how much it's meant to them, or in the case of parents often, how important the choir has been in their, in their children's lives. For me, all of that is enough, and the rest of my energy can really go into making space for the performers. I mean, it's certainly true that what you do is so important in the lives of so many of our students. And I really respect and admire the humility that you bring to your work. And I know that there's one student in particular with whom you've connected over the last few years. And so, Dr. Curtis, I reached out to her. It's Alethea Stoddard. And I asked her if she wanted to pose a question or two to you. And one of the questions that she has for you reads as follows. What are some of the most difficult dimensions of working with a choir? And like, how do you deal with those difficulties? She wants to know the hard part. Yeah, she sure does. (laughs) (laughs) Please say that she is the most difficult aspect. (laughs) She's probably the least difficult aspect. (laughs) Of all people. Yeah. I know, right? Maybe leaving the pandemic aside and everything about that has been difficult, especially for choirs. Yes. I think one of the things that I've struggled with the most, and especially in the past two years, the structure of our school is such that, well, it has led to the past couple of years, really a swarm, I would say, a swarm of students joining the choir as 11th graders for the first time, having never sung in a choir before, or maybe the last time was elementary school. And they're not experienced. And that's okay, but they really have a lot of vocal problems. A large choir can easily assimilate one or two or three non-pitch matchers. But when 15 of them come in at the same time, that's very difficult. And this has been a phenomenon that has occurred recently. And I think I know the primary reason for it, and I'm not faulting these students at all, 
they have learned that they can join the choir and use it to boost their GPA in the German system. At least they think they'll be able to use it to boost their GPA. Right. And sometimes I'm put in a position where I have to actually be the, the one who disappoints them that this in the end hasn't helped their GPA because they haven't either put in the effort or the German system is so different than the American system in, in areas like choir, art, gym class, where it really is based on your ability level and how well you can do what you're doing. In an American school, it's usually based upon participation, perceived effort, etc. So students come in and suddenly they're confronted with things like singing tests. Yeah, this is, has been a huge challenge for an increasingly large number of students. So for me, the hardest part has been how to meet their needs and at the same time, how to meet the needs of the rest of the choir. And when I talk about the rest, I have people like Alethea in mind, who has sung her entire life, loves singing in a choir, and is able to handle very difficult literature and would love the challenge. And then she might end up sitting next to a student who has just joined as an 11th grader, has no singing experience, and may also not have a great interest in learning this or in putting in the required effort. And so do I water down the material to make everybody successful, thereby leaving out the more advanced students and watering down their experience as well? Or do I stay with the very high-level challenging literature and just leave some of these students so to speak, in the dust. This has been very challenging for me. And this has been, as I said, a rather new phenomenon over the past two or three years. And how I deal with it, yeah, I'm not sure I have dealt with it. I put a system into place, and that is if a student wants to join the choir as a Grund course, which they're allowed to do in 11th grade, and that's how you would get this in as part of your GPA, they either have to have been a successful member of the choir in ninth or 10th grade or have a little interview with me. The interview would involve me having them sing a little bit just to see, are they going to be able to learn to match pitch even if they can't right now? And what are their motivations? Are they there because they really want to learn to sing? Or is this simply, ah, they see it as an easy way to boost the GPA? And so we'll see what kind of an impact that has or doesn't have on next year's choir. But that's, at this point, my attempt to deal with the situation. Yeah, that does seem like a difficult situation. And it seems like you found an empathic approach that like leaves it open to them, right? But creating a dialogue with them surely will make a positive difference for the choir, but also for the students, Ultimately, it's no good for them if they're showing up to a class for which they have no tastes. Exactly. You know, just because they feel it's going to bump them when you know it probably won't anyway. So I think you got to figure it out. It's a clever solution. You're a clever person. It all makes sense. And it's, you know, potentially it's just going to lead 
frustration and disappointment on the part of those students as well. well. On the part of everyone. You're saving everyone a whole lot of agony by having some of these discussions. So thanks for doing it. And I should say, as a regular audience member at your concerts, thank you for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been doing this for some time. You've been teaching for more than three decades. You're a real veteran, and you've amassed a breadth of experiences. I wonder what you know now that you didn't know about your practice five or ten years ago. Yeah, I think... I think what I know now or approach differently is hopefully something that all of us in our society are approaching differently and have learned. And that would revolve around issues of social justice. Awareness of what we do and how it might impact those around us, in this case, specifically students think about issues of gender identity in a choir. I wasn't confronted with this 10 years ago. I probably should have been, but people just weren't as open as they are now. And so in the last couple of years, or five years at least, I've had students who are, just as an example, one student who didn't identify with the gender that was assigned at birth and identified as male. And this student uh, had said they wanted to sing in the tenor section of the choir. So I listened to the voice and I realized we'll fit absolutely fine into that section. And so we went with that. I give my students also great credit there seemed to be absolute acceptance for that. A couple of years later, I had a student who had been in the choir for years and announced also that this particular person was identifying with a gender that wasn't assigned at birth. And this student had been singing bass, low bass for years, and was beginning to identify or had then started to identify as female. And so I asked the student, sort of half tongue-in-cheek, well, I hope you'll still be willing to sing in the bass section because you're very good. And the student said, well, my voice hasn't changed, so I guess I'll stay where I've always been. (laughs) Perfect. So, yeah, these issues. And then just around that, concert outfits. We used to have the boys wear this, the girls wear that. And this was stated in all of our materials And in the last couple of years, I've gone to completely gender-neutral outfits. And so that's been a big change for me. But also around issues of social justice and inclusion, just thinking about the repertoire that we sing. Who are these composers? Are they representative of the variety that we have in our world? Are these people of color that are composing the music we sing? Is the music coming from a variety of cultures? Are we representing female as well as male composers? So I think this is something that has changed for me quite a bit, and that's I see that as a very positive thing. Yeah, the world's changing, and you're changing with it. And I remember when I was in high school, and I'm sure it's been the case for several decades, the high school choir, the music, and the theater departments have been probably the safest spaces 
for non-binary people, for the LGBTQIA communities, and also for students who are ethno-religious or racial minorities, right? The, the choir has been perhaps the most empowering and liberating space for students who sometimes, particularly in some schools, don't have a safe space. And I know that your work is intimately engaged in empowering all students. And I'm really heartened to hear that even though you've committed a career to that, you've amped it up over the last five to 10 years. Go Dr. Curtis. That's what I got to say. <laughs> I, Thanks. I'm just kind of curious, and this is maybe a little broad, but I wonder what you wish people knew about the work of the choral director. Like for everyone who's been listening to this discussion, it's clear that there's so much involved in the job. It is truly an interdisciplinary, holistic experience. What would you like people to know about the work of the choral director? What people might not realize if they haven't been in a choir is that a choir is a lot more than just singing. It's community. We're a team. In addition, it's very serious academic work, and a lot of people don't realize that. Also in education, it's not always acknowledged. Music brings everything together. And thinking about a school environment, music brings together language, literature, mathematics, physics, biology, sport, psychology, history, culture. It's kind of all there. And uh, I think that not everybody realizes that, but anybody who has sung in a choir definitely knows that. Indeed. And as someone who, perhaps to the chagrin of my choral director, did sing in a choir for a couple of years in high school, <laughs> I totally appreciate how true that is. And of course, my limited experience as a choir student has much to do with why I so desperately wanted to have you on the Studs podcast, because I realize how fully engaged you must be to do your job as well as you do it. And that should be enough. But being the perpetual ingrate that I am, <laughs> I'm hoping you could help me to drive this train into the station by sharing just a couple stories. First, if you would share the story of a professional failure, a misstep from which I'm sure you've learned, and then help us to wrap up by sharing a story of triumph. I think back to a situation when I was teaching choir in Bisbee, Arizona, and we had scheduled a performance. I'm very organized about schedules and calendars, and I had given the students, basically the first day of school, a list of all of their commitments. These are the things that I need you to sign off on and I need you to be present at. Basically, it becomes something like a contract between the students and myself. They know that if there's a conflict and they see it early, they come and talk to me about it and we might be able to work something out, but I don't like last minute surprises. So there was a, a performance that had been planned for out of town. It was actually a, a competition of sorts. One of my best tenors, and God didn't make very many tenors, I always say. <laughs> so um, he, he was very valuable to the, yes. the choir as a whole. 
a tennis match had been rescheduled to, of course, the day of our performance. And he was also a good tennis player, important to the school's tennis team. And I really put my foot down and said, he signed a contract. His parents signed the contract. He has to go to the performance. I was on the calendar first. The tennis team should not be able to just willy-nilly change their schedule. And I was really hard-nosed about this. And in the process, and only later did I realize that through being so inflexible, I almost lost the friendship of not only the student, but also his entire family. And in this small town, mostly everybody knows everybody, and, and the family, they were all good friends of mine. And in the end, I was able to, to back off a bit and to make some amends to the family. But I did realize that, oh man, I came close to losing that relationship and uh, in the long run probably did damage it a bit by my inflexibility. So that's something I, I, I would look back on with some regret and hopefully have learned from. And a triumph. Please. I will share a quick story about Wayne. Wayne came to me. Uh, I wanted to, desperately to be in the choir. And so I listened to Wayne. And when I would sing, I, Wayne, repeat after me. Ah. That was me. Here's Wayne. Ah, Wayne, <laughs> do you think you sang what I sang? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Okay, this is going to be a lot of work. So, Wayne, sing after me. Ah, here's Wayne. Ah, Wayne, did you sing what I sang? Yeah, I'm pr pretty sure I did. Okay, so... Wayne was in the choir, and Wayne knew at some point, because I, I helped him to learn, no, Wayne, you are not singing what I'm singing. Let's record both of us. Listen, do you hear the same thing? Oh, I guess I don't. So Wayne came to me once a week after school for a private voice lesson. And at some point, I got Wayne to be able to sing five separate pitches. They were all very low. It was a progress. And then Wayne announced to me one day he wanted to go to solo an ensemble competition and sing a solo and get a rating from a judge. And I thought, okay, how do we survive this one? Wayne never, ever gave up. And that's what I admired so much about this, this young man. He continued to come to after-school voice lessons with me. And we slowly, painfully slowly increased his range half step by half step. And I found a piece of music that was very simple and quite low. And then I transposed it so it was even lower. <laughs> was it, it from like a Nepalese throat singer? <laughs> no, it was a little folk song and I don't even remember what it was, but I transposed it down into the basement so that it was within Wayne's range and actually utilized the five or six notes that Wayne could sing and didn't go beyond that range. So off Wayne went to solo competition. And when he went into this, this room and sang for a judge, of course, I wasn't there. I had no idea what happened, but he came out and how'd it go, Wayne? 
oh, I think it went pretty well. Good. The scores came back out of uh, one being the highest, I think five or six being the lowest possible. Wayne got a three. Wayne and I were both very happy with that. And so (laughs) I consider that a triumph for myself and for Wayne as well. Well, I think that particular triumph speaks poetically to much of what you've said over the course of our discussion today. You know, meeting people where they're at, believing quite rightly that what you're doing matters, working with them assiduously day after day, having empathy for them, coaching them, believing in them. The triumph matters. And I'll bet that Wayne, wherever Wayne may be now, tells the story on occasion of the moments that you and he shared in an effort to help him to get better at something that he wanted to get better at. I hope he does. I hope he shares that. (laughs) I'm convinced that he does, because that's the way I want the story (laughs) to end. And in fact, in my version of the story, Precisely as you and I are talking about Wayne, Wayne is halfway across the world somewhere. You know, he's, he's closing down a bar in Arizona right now, telling the story of the great times that he had with this <laughs> dude, Dr. Curtis. I don't see why not. It's Could be. totally within the realm of possibility. Dr. Joseph Curtis, it has been such a joy to be with you, to share space with you, to learn from you, to hear about what you do. Like I've said, I've had the distinguished pleasure of watching your work and of being your colleague for some years now. And I have a lot of faith in your willingness and your ability to bring out the best in all of those around you, including but not limited to your students. I'm grateful for you, and I'm really happy to hear that you still love what you do. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's It's been my pleasure to talk about the work that I do and that I love. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, I assure you. Hey, I got an idea, and it's totally up to you. It would seem appropriate to me, since we've been talking about your students singing for the entirety of our discussion here, if you're game, I bet our audience would love to hear you sing How do you feel about it? I think I can do that. Yeah? What do you want to sing? You have such a vast repertoire. I don't even know how you would choose. Okay, why don't we do this? How about you tell me how you would even begin to choose what to sing in an environment like this, and then sing it, and I will close my eyes and enjoy it. Okay. Um, well, it has to, has to sound okay a cappella. That rules out a lot of the music that I've sung. And I've discovered or rediscovered a love for folk music during the pandemic. I've met online with my parent faculty choir to sing. And because of latency issues, we can't really sing together. And the music has to be quite simple. So I've provided them with a packet of folk songs, German and English mostly. They all turn their microphones off. I sing. They sing with. I see them smiling. I see their mouths moving. And we have a great time and we laugh. So one of the songs that they request almost every week is a song that I learned when I was living in Bisbee 
near the Mexican border, taking many trips over to Mexico and having lots of Mexican and Mexican-American friends. It's a song that is really important to Mexican culture, sung at birthdays and all kinds of celebrations, and even funerals. And that is the Mexican folk song, De Colores. So basically the song makes me happy. So I'll give it a shot. De Colores De colores se visten los campos en la primavera. De colores, de colores son los pajaritos que vienen de afuera. De colores, de colores es el arco iris que vemos lucir. Y por eso los grandes amores de muchos colores me gustan a mí. Y por eso los grandes amores de muchos colores me gustan a mí. Thanks, Doc. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. What more could you ask for, my friends? An empathic exploration of the life of a choral director and the song. I love this podcast. <laughs> All right. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please hop over to patreon.com studs and do your small part to support this here independent creator in his effort to hedge against political pablum and celebrity navel-gazing and to draw your attention to real working lives. I'll be back doing it again in two weeks. Until then, I wish you health and wellness. I hope that you're not languishing, but indeed that you're thriving. And I hope that you're creating a space to give yourself some grace, to forge forward, preferably with a smile. There are still reasons to smile, right? Yeah. I'll talk to you soon.